I really enjoy hearing the funny things that children say. And if you're around children, you probably experience that quite often. I think of how even in our household, we frequently write down the humorous quotes that come from our children's mouths just so we can remember them and get a laugh out of them months or even years later. I think of how even this week, my four-year-old daughter, Tahila, we were, she and I were just sitting at the dinner table. It was just she and I. I don't remember even exactly what we were doing. But she said, I'm as quick as a squeak. And I thought... Ah, well, I never thought of a squeak being quick, but I guess it works. Um, it was one of those things I went over and wrote it down. But, you know, it's, it's fun to hear the things that children say. And I want to start us off this morning by listening to what some children say about the question, what does love mean? What does love mean? Here are some examples. Rebecca, age 8, said that when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That is love. It is an expression of love, isn't it? Nika, age six, said, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with someone you hate. Hard advice, but there's some truth in that because true love doesn't just reach out to those who like you and who can benefit you. True love reaches out to everyone. Also, Tommy, age six, said that love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends even after they know each other so well. Cindy, age eight, said that during my piano recital, I was on stage and I was scared. I looked at all the people watching me and I saw my daddy waving and smiling. He was the only one doing that and I wasn't scared anymore. A beautiful picture of parental love providing comfort, even from a bit of a distance. Jessica, age 8, said, You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. Very true. Finally, Bobby, age 7, said, Love is what's in the room at Christmas, if you stop opening presents and listen. So a good piece of advice for us around Christmas time, just... And it's even a part of the series of don't just focus on the gifts and, and the traditions and stuff. Focus on, on the bigger picture of what's going on. And so we have this question of what does love mean? And as we focus on this topic of Christmas, it's a great topic to focus on because um, really the birth of Jesus is the most beautiful, most powerful expression of love that has been given in human history. So I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We are in a series right now called Be Christmas, and we are focusing on four themes through this series. One is worship fully, and then spend less, give more, and finally today, love all. And then there's a special treat related to this series on Christmas Eve. And the idea here is that we don't really want to do Christmas in terms of getting so caught up in the traditions and in the activities of the Christmas season that we lose sight of the main focus. Instead, we want to focus not just on doing Christmas, but on being Christmas, of allowing the work that Jesus began 2,000 years ago to continue to shine in and through us today. And today, specifically in the next few minutes, we're going to be looking at how our love for other people, as God works through us, can really help us to be Christmas. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig into John chapter 3. Our Father, once again, we do thank you for your tremendous love. And I know that we come here this morning with a variety of things in our minds, uh, many good, maybe many challenging as well, and maybe with a variety of perspectives on you as well, wondering maybe even where are you, Lord? Do you really love me? But I pray that this morning, 
in whatever circumstance we are approaching you, that we will come and experience just uh, in a fresh way the depth of your love for us, and then that we will also see how you want to share your love through us to the surrounding world, and that we will be motivated to, to do that, to really live out what we are talking about today in terms of loving all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to focus today on John chapter 3, verse 16. And if that's a familiar biblical address, it's probably because John three sixteen is the most famous verse out of the Bible. And so what I want to do, actually, is for us to all read it together. It's going to be up on the screen, uh, John three sixteen. So let's just read it together, and we'll dig into this familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this is a very well-known verse, and I think it's a very applicable verse to the Christmas season because really it pictures God's Christmas gift to us. Now, I want to ask some questions of this particular verse uh, just to help us understand the gift that God has given us. First of all, what has God given? Well, God gave his Son. We see here clearly he gave his one and only Son. This, this highlights the reality of the Trinity, that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are not three separate gods. They are all God, but they are all one God. And so we see here God the Father saying that God so loved, the Father so loved the world he sent his Son into the world. And, and what a sacrificial and generous gift he was. I mean, it's highlighted his one and only Son. God gives us many gifts. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 17, it says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. But of all the gifts God could possibly give, giving his son is the most precious, special, sacrificial, personal, meaningful, and powerful gift that God could possibly give. And so we come to the second question, to whom did he give this gift? He gave the gift of his son. Who did he give it to? He gave it to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, if you lived 2,000 years ago in Israel, where Jesus was ministering, this idea of God loving the world would be at least surprising, if not shocking, to you if you were a Jewish person hearing this. Because in that society, from that perspective, Jewish people were God's chosen people. They were the ones, Israelites were the ones who God loved And God really didn't care all that much for the rest of the world. That was the common perspective. But then we see here, God loved the world. And even in the New Testament era, the idea of the world, when you see that word, oftentimes it has very negative connotations because the world is in rebellion against God. And we even see that just a few verses later, verse 19 of John 3. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. This light referring to Jesus. He came into the world But people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. So this is just a glimpse of this idea of the world being in rebellion against God. Yet God still um, gave a tremendous sacrificial gift to the world. And it's valuable to ask, why did he do this? Why did he give such a generous gift to the world that was very, very undeserving of this type of generosity? Well, we can look at that why question from a couple different angles. One, one is the, the question of purpose. What was the purpose of this gift? Well, that question is answered when it says that the purpose of the gift was to give us eternal 
life. That's, that's one of the reasons why God sent his son into this world to give us eternal life. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so we deserve death. We earn spiritual death, the spiritual death penalty in terms of separation from God both now and for eternity because of our sin. That's what we deserve. But God's gift of Jesus Christ through his grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, he gives us eternal life. Now, it's a gift that we have to receive. That's why he says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have to receive that by faith. We can't just say, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus was a person and stuff like that. We actually have to receive that into our life and make it a significant part of our life. But he sent Jesus to give us eternal life. But still, we have the question of what would motivate God to do this? Because, again, we are so deeply undeserving as a world. What would motivate such a sacrificial gift? of giving a son. So the second why in terms of the motivation is that God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He so loved the world. It speaks of the intensity, the zeal, and the passion with which God loves the world. Um, and, I mean, we come back to that question that we asked earlier of uh, the children. What, what does love mean? What does love mean? And John 3.16 provides a great, great uh, response to what love means. Well, love means that we would give sacrificially for the benefit of others, even if they don't deserve it. I mean, love is really about giving sacrificially for the benefit of others, even when they don't deserve it. That's exactly what God did for us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, talk about the same thing. I mean, the Apostle Paul said, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly, undeserving people. He died for us. Paul went on to say, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his unlove for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrated his love, by having Christ die for us even while we were still sinners. And I mean, that's that's a remarkable thing. Because you think about, um, think for instance about a dating relationship. In a dating relationship, you're doing everything you can to put your best foot forward to to impress the other person. I mean, I I think back to when Shelly and I were dating. I mean, I'm I'm putting a whole lot of thought into things like where are we going to go? What are we going to do? I mean, how can I get to know her better? I mean, sometimes when you're dating, you're you're thinking about what clothes am I going to wear to impress them and all all kinds of different factors there because you're wanting to to develop a deeper relationship with them. You're, You're wanting, again, to put your best foot forward But with God, that's not what we did. It's not like God's love is dependent on us trying to make ourselves look better, being really religious or cleaning our act up before he loves us. In fact, God's love is very different than that because Christ died for us while we were still ungodly. God demonstrates his love for us that Christ died while we were still sinners. Not after we tried to clean ourselves up religiously, but before and so we see that God's love is very different than the way human love oftentimes work. And we ask, okay, where does that come from? Well, God's love, again, it's not dependent 
on us. It, it, it doesn't come because we've cleaned our act up. It doesn't come because we're trying to be more religious. It doesn't come because of some great inherent value that we have. God loves us because he is love in the very core of his being. First John chapter 4 says that God is love. He loves not because of who we are or who we are not. He loves because he is love. And that, that's really a game changer when you understand the depth of God's love that goes to the very core of his being, to, that is central to his character. And so that's why we see, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So it's a beautiful picture of God's love. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Now I want to bring this back and apply it now to the idea of Christmas and being Christmas. And we have to understand as we look at God's love for us that if we want to be Christmas to those around us, being Christmas is all about uh, letting God's love shine through us. It's about letting God's love shine through us to the surrounding world. God loves everyone regardless of their background, regardless of how broken or messy their lives are. God loves everyone. And we are called to do the same. Tony Evans, in that class, Horizontal Jesus, that we are going to be offering starting January 8th, in one of the sessions he asks, are you cul-de-sac Christians or are you conduit Christians? It's a metaphor where cul-de-sac Christians are people who receive God's love and it comes in their life and it stops there. Like a cul-de-sac. But conduit Christians are those who receive God's love in their life, but they're like a conduit allowing God's love to flow through them to the world around them. And there's a huge difference between that. So there's a question of, are you a cul-de-sac Christian or are you a conduit Christian who allows God's love to, to flow through you, to shine through you? And as a church, we want to be faithful to God's call to be those conduit Christians allowing God's love to flow in us and through us to the surrounding world. That's why our vision as a church so outreach-oriented to be a blessing to the people of our community through Christ-centered love. We want to allow God's love to flow through us and, and bless those around us in Christ's name. We want to be faithful to that call. Now, over the months as we've developed this vision, as we've sought to begin to implement it, uh, there have been questions about what, what does Christ-centered love really mean? I mean, we hear this phrase, it sounds really nice. What does it mean to have Christ-centered love? And we've already talked about God's love quite a bit here, but I want to focus in on this idea of Christ-centered love because it's central to what it means to be, not only to be Christmas, but to be a Christian. So what is Christ-centered love? Just I want to offer a few different angles of this. These are not exhaustive. They are not inspired um, by God specifically, but at the same time, I think it's a helpful description. So on one hand, Christ-centered love is love that embodies the joyful, sacrificial, unconditional generosity of Christ for the benefit of others. Now, there's a lot there. It's not one of those things that I expect anyone to memorize. But I think it, it captures well this, this depth of love that is Christ-centered. It's joyful. It's not out of obligation or duty or someone hassling you to, to try to do something. It's because you are filled with joy that God's love for you. And so you're joyfully loving others. It's sacrificial, meaning just like what Jesus did for us cost him something. That our love for others, you know what? It might cost us something. But it's unconditional. I mean, it's not based on any precondition that someone has. 
It, it's not based on how can uh, our love for them then benefit us in return or just simply extending love only to those who already like us. No, it's unconditional, meaning it extends to everyone. And it's for the benefit of other people. So that's one angle of Christ-centered love. Another angle is that it is motivated by God's love for us through Christ. That's the motivation for our love. And it's Christ-centered because it's motivated by God's love for us through Christ. We see in 1 John that we love because he first loved us. We don't, we don't conjure it up in ourselves. We, we allow God's love to fill us up, and then it flows over in, our, in the rest of our lives. I think also first, or Second Corinthians chapter 5, it says Christ's love compels us in our ministry. That's, that's the motivation in our ministry is being compelled by the love of Christ. And you look at the way Jesus served. I mean, think of God the Son. He's been in heaven enjoying a lot of blessings there from eternity past. And there comes that point where he's ready to step down to this world in human form, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, do you think Jesus did that reluctantly? I don't think so. I think he did it with joy because he is loved. He wanted to serve in this way. Uh, Fast forward later in Jesus' life, when it comes time for Jesus to go to the cross to bear the wrath of God for our sins, did, did he do that begrudgingly? Now, he certainly had some trepidation at what he was about to undergo because of the physical pain and the the spiritual anguish of being separated from the Father as he bore the wrath for our sins. I don't think he did that begrudgingly. In fact, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews talks about how for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was a joy in serving because of love that was intrinsic inside of him. And that love that he has displayed to us, that joyful, self-giving, sacrificial love to benefit others can motivate us and our love for others as well. Now, another aspect of Christ-centered love is that it ultimately seeks to point people to Christ. It has the ultimate goal of pointing people to Jesus. Because if it doesn't have this, somewhere in the, along the line is the ultimate goal You have to question whether it's really Christian love at all. Because this is one of the key things that separates just general love that you'd find anywhere from anyone versus Christ-centered love. Is that the ultimate goal is that we want people to experience true life through Christ. Because you think about what is a person's greatest need in this world? I mean, greatest need. There are all kinds of needs that someone might have, all kinds of desires someone might have. But I I believe that the deepest, greatest need that every person has is to be reconciled with God. Because that helps us to live out the design that God created us for. It helps us to have hope and life not only here on this earth, but also for eternity. So if a person's greatest need is to be reconciled with God, yet we are not seeking in some way to meet that need, to help point them to Christ, to find that reconciliation— are we really loving them at all? Now, I do recognize that our society uh, gets easily offended uh, with anything that sounds preachy. Our society is not always very fond of talk about God and Jesus in church. So it does require sensitivity and tact. That's one of the reasons that we talk about the importance of relational ministry, of, of building care and trust in our relationships, because we believe the gospel flows best over the bridge of relationships. But we do have to still understand that Christ-centered love has that, that ultimate goal of pointing people to Jesus. 
Now, another angle of Christ-centered love, and this is an angle, I mean, it's not just about Christ-centered love, but just love in general is that um, it, it, it's love that's put into action. Now, it's not the type of love that just is, is theorized about in a Bible study where people talk about, you know what, we should really love in this way and that way and that way. Because if it's just theory, if it's just abstract, if it's just things that people talk about doing but don't actually do it, you have to question whether it's true love. Because true love is lived out in the way that we live our lives. And this is the nature of what God accomplished at Christmas. I, I, just thinking about Christmas, I, I came across an account of the singer Bono. He is the lead singer of the um, rock band U2. I mean, certainly one of the most well-known bands around the world. Um, U2 is based out of Ireland. But Bono has talked about many years ago, he had come home uh, back to Ireland, back to Dublin from a, a long tour. He was weary, but he went to a Christmas Eve service there in Dublin. And he was talking about just how the idea of God becoming flesh just struck home to him in a fresh way in that service. I want to read to you what Bono said about this, because I think it illustrates well how love needs to be demonstrated in action. Here's what Bono said. He said, The idea that God would seek to explain himself is amazing enough. That he would seek to explain himself by becoming a child born in poverty? I thought, wow, just the poetry of it. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. And he said, love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. So it's this idea that love must be incarnated. Incarnated means that it becomes flesh, that, it, that it's lived out in, in practical action. And that's what God was doing through Jesus. That Jesus is God come to earth in human form. He's love incarnated. And for us, as we want to live out Christ-like love to those around us, our love needs to be incarnated as well. It needs to be uh, manifested outwardly in our words and in our actions. Because if it is not, all it is is nice sentiment, nice theory, but it's not true biblical Christ-centered love that benefits and blesses others. Because love must take on flesh. It must be put into action. And that's one of the things that even last week we had a really interesting exercise of sorts um, if you were here last week and you received a bulletin, there, you found there was money in the bulletin. If you were not here last week and you're thinking, oh, I wish I would have gotten in on that, um, we actually have some money left over from that because it was snowy last week, a little bit lower attendance. So if you'd like money, come talk with me after the service. I'd be happy to give you some money. But money comes with a stipulation, with a responsibility, with, with a stewardship. Because it was $2 in every bulletin and it was seed money given with the understanding that, that you are under an obligation to use it in a way to bless someone else in the next few weeks. I said, you know what? You may not like that. You may not like coming to church. You may just think, I just want to come and sit and not be under any obligation. But is not that the way that God creates the world to operate? That we are given many, many blessings and we are to be stewards of all those blessings and we will be held accountable for it. So, so we gave out these $2, and it's really neat to hear some of the stories of how people used that money during the last week. I mean, for some, it was as simple as going and buying a cup of coffee. 
and delivering it to the crossing guard for, for kids crossing the street on a cold morning. And it was neat to hear how with that coffee, I mean, that was an encouragement to that woman. But then, then she shared just how, you know, it's been a rough day so far. But that was an encouragement for her in a very practical way. I heard other accounts of, of people using that money to, you know, they, there were needs that were already there, but this money compelled them to actually do something about the needs. One family shared about there's someone they know who um, is, is um, nearing the end of her life um, because of cancer. And so this family decided, let's bake some meals for them, bake some food and take it over to them. And so that compelled them to do that. I mean, another um, couple who knows someone else in hospice um, decided to make a nice little care basket just to encourage them and deliver that yesterday. And um, it's showing, okay, $2 is seed money. You can't buy a whole lot of food or a nice basket for $2, but it motivates people to do something they otherwise wouldn't have done. Someone else told me after first service, yeah, the neighbor who's snowblower, um, I mean, just had a little problem with it. Um, he was, this guy is mechanical, so he used that $2 to go out and fix their snowblower. I mean, so many different stories like this. I mean, others who used it to support um, a missionary who had a particular need overseas or, or used the money to help support a child who's sponsored down in Guatemala. I mean, these are just examples of, of Christ-centered love being put into action because one of the things that's really caught my attention just over the last week as people share their stories is how, you know, a vast majority of these things are things that people— they're kind of generally aware of a need, but they needed something to spur them on to actually do something about that need. And it's neat to see, see people really sharing the love of Christ in a practical way. And so that's one of the things we want to do more and more as a church. We actually have a team called the Vision Team, which is working to help implement this vision, help us to really live out this Christ-centered love. And one of the things they're working towards is helping open our eyes to the needs out there and, and to how we can meet those needs. Now, in talking about pointing people to Jesus, I think this week, with Christmas coming up in, in one week, offers a tremendous opportunity, a natural opportunity. We have a great Christmas Eve service here at Freedoms. It's one of my favorite services of the year. It's a great opportunity to invite someone to come with you to church because that's a way for them to, to be blessed in many ways, but including to, to hear about Jesus. Out at the Welcome Center, we have postcards uh, just that you can take a few, uh, invite, pass them out to people that you know who might be interested in coming to a Christmas Eve service. We did this last year, put them in, among other things, in, in cards that we gave to teachers and bus drivers for, with our children. And one of the, the teachers who's associated with our son, Micaiah, she actually came to the Christmas Eve service said, thank you so much. I mean, it's neat. I mean, just little things, making the most of the opportunities that are around us. And so we have this idea of putting love into action. Now, there's one other important piece of Christ-centered love that we do not want to miss. It's the idea that Christ-centered love prioritizes those who are struggling and marginalized. You think about the the people with whom Jesus spent his time here on this earth. It was oftentimes the social outcasts, the nobodies of society— It was the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. It was the little children who who no one else wanted to have around. It was the lepers, the Samaritans, the the woman who was bleeding. And then she was, again, a social outcast. Jesus welcomed her in. These are the people with whom Jesus spent his time. And and so it's important that that as we are seeking to live out Christ-centered love, 
that we are prioritizing those who are struggling or who are marginalized. Now, as we talk about this idea of Christ-centered love, though, and, and loving everyone, it can be daunting because we look at the world with so many needs, and it's like, where in the world do we even start? Well, I think that Jesus' parable known as the parable of the Good Samaritan is very helpful for us in this. If you're familiar with that parable, um, it's, it's a, a religious leader asking Jesus, who's my neighbor? Because I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a, a man out walking in a remote road and, and someone bandits or someone comes along and, and mugs him and beats him up and leaves him for dead on the side of the road. And then three different people walk by. Two of them are devoted Jews. And they both walk by and try to ignore that man on the side of the road. But a third person walks by who is a Samaritan. And that society... Samaritans were despised by Jews. But the Samaritan walks by, sees this person in need, walks over there, starts caring for him, bandages him up, and and actually carries him um, into town and makes sure that all of his needs are provided for to help him get healthy again. And Jesus asks, which one is the neighbor? Which one is showing love here? It's the Samaritan who sees a need and meets it. And I think that's a good picture for us as well, that we need to have our eyes open to see needs and then to meet the needs that we see. And I want to close with a quote from J.I. Packer. He's a Christian author, Christian scholar. I think it's a great picture of what it looks like to love those around us. J.I. Packer said, For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant love to the uttermost for unlovely people. It is our shame and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in in our Lord's parable, seeing human needs all around them, but after a pious wish and perhaps a prayer that God might meet their needs, averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. That is not the Christmas spirit. But it is the spirit of some Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the society, Christian and non-Christian, to get on as best they can. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. When I read that, that really struck me. The the Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. So just ponder that for a while. Um, J.I. Packer goes on to say, For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just to their own friends, in whatever way there seems need. And so we see that being Christmas is a year-round, lifelong endeavor that requires us keeping our eyes open for needs, and when we see a need around us, seeking to meet that need. And this is what love looks like, and this is what it means to be Christmas. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you saw a need, that you were willing to step off your heavenly throne to come into the messiness of this world, even while we were still ungodly sinners. Even before we had cleaned up our act, Lord, you still loved us. And I pray that as we receive that tremendous love in our lives, and I pray we will receive it. Um, Think of gifts on, on Christmas morning. We don't want to leave such a tremendous gift 
as your grace unopened under the tree, Lord. We want to receive it. And so I pray that we will each receive your love into our lives and then that we will be able to shine that love out to others as you work in us and through us, Lord. May this not just be a a thing we want to do during this Christmas series, but may it be something that increasingly characterizes our whole life, that we will point people around us to Christ and love them with a Christ-like love. We pray these things with gratitude in Jesus' name.